This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Why AI and why now? Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Amit Hosni, a machine learning research scientist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, as well as a writer and blogger evaluating the startup landscape in artificial intelligence as it relates to pathology and radiology. We're going to talk about what is artificial intelligence, look at the landscape of startups in AI and pathology, and what are the barriers to entry? Not surprisingly, and particularly compared to radiology, what seems to keep cropping up is a lack of infrastructure and lack of interoperability. This episode of Digital Pathology Today is brought to you in part by Ibex Medical Analytics. Ibex uses AI to develop clinical-grade solutions that help pathologists improve diagnostic accuracy and efficiency. Labs around the world use Ibex AI for real-time quality control of breast and prostate. For more about Ibex, go to www.ibex-ai.com or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Ahmed Hasni, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Joe. Thank you for having me. Now, we're here talking about AI startups and digital pathology and applications of AI. So just tell us a little bit about yourself first. How did you get started in this uh, racket? It's your experience in artificial intelligence, and how did you come to have an interest in digital pathology? I was actually trained as an architect. I worked on construction projects uh, for a few years in China, went back to school. One of our collaborators, researchers, he was diagnosed with a glioblastoma. He was a scientist and was very curious about what was going on with his body. And he ended up introducing us to his surgical team, the guys that performed surgery. Some of them were working on a medical device. They wanted someone that could imagine how it would look like, how it would function, and how it, would, how it could be brought to market. And that's kind of one of the first medical projects that I ended up working on. I knew nothing about medical devices, uh, but I could uh, prototype and fabricate some samples for them, and that's how it all started. And this was back in 2014. I worked on a few uh, medical devices since then, slowly transitioned to software. Currently, my position at the Dana-Farber uh, Cancer Institute is as a uh, machine learning research scientist for the past five years now. We mainly develop uh, machine learning tools for cancer diagnostics and therapeutics as well. On the diagnostic side, we develop prognostic models, being able to predict things like overall survival, progression-free survival, distant met local regional recurrence, similar endpoints from patient CT scans. On the therapeutic side, as, as we work in a radiation oncology department, we work on automating some of the treatment planning workflows uh, radiation oncologists use to generate plans for patients. Specifically related to pathology, and given uh, my work in, in cancer generally, one of the things that struck me about pathology is how it is the first diagnostic point for many, many cancers. This has a lot of implications uh, when it comes to clinical trial recruitment, for instance. So that was one thing that kind of interested me in pathology. Obviously, I think the elephant in the room is the data, the lack of digital data that you know you take for granted when you work in, say, radiology or radiation oncology. A lot of the most popular staining techniques, H&E staining and so on, were developed almost 200 years ago and had very little uh, change since then. It's quite amazing how some of these methods are, are quite robust and are able to you know, help patients today. You kind of came at it from a slightly different angle. You said you had a friend uh, who was diagnosed with cancer, and he took an acute interest in this. 
For people outside of medicine, pathology is often an unknown specialty. In medicine, pathologists are often referred to as the doctor's doctor. I've heard it referred to as the best kept secret in medicine, you know, so it's not readily obvious to people, these behind the scenes doctors. Also, as outsiders looking in, people might be appalled to see the current state of the practice that is looking through microscopes using technology that's over 150 years old and rendering often a very subjective opinion, which then constitutes the patient's diagnosis. Appalled might be a strong word, but shocked or surprised that we do things in such an antiquated way, many people might say, and it's a very manual process. So I think we're entering very exciting times now that we have all these computing tools and computing power and artificial intelligence that we can really bring to bear on the discipline of pathology. And then you also mentioned that you were in radiology. So I think we're also seeing uh, sort of a convergence where we don't necessarily have the silos of the various specialties where pathology is cordoned off and that's, you know, uses one set of tools and radiology is another and radiation oncology uses another. I think we're seeing a a convergence to really bring these computing powers to, to create solutions that will ultimately benefit patients. It's no secret that pathology has been slow to go digital. Um, there's an estimate that in the United States, maybe between only 5 to 20%, which may be generous, of practice has actually gone digital, and we seem to lag the rest of the world in the United States. So uh, why do you think this is, and is it surprising? And do you have any insights from other industries that might shed, help shed light on this interesting problem? Specifically, when it comes to the U.S., we're looking at a more acute shortage of pathologists. In a country like China, for instance, uh, you have roughly the same number of pathologists, uh, but obviously serving around four times the the population. So there is definitely more dire need for pathologists um, elsewhere, which is uh, perhaps pushing more into the digital realm. The other um, reason for this, I believe, is more on the regulatory side. Uh, The FDA has always been known to be a few years behind its European uh, counterpart, the the CE or the CEMAR. So, for instance, if you look at one of the very earliest digital pathology systems that were allowed to go through, that went through a regulatory pathway in Europe was around 2013. The first system that was cleared by the FDA was, um, was 2017, so a few years after that. So there's definitely a little bit of uh, lag and more stringent regulatory environment. Some research uh, today that looks at the equivalency of a digital slide when compared to a glass slide. And it seems that for cases that are on both sides of the spectrum, there is very high degree of equivalency. Uh, whereas for cases that are somewhere in between, uh, there's there's still some, some doubt uh, in whether you know, the digital scan is equivalent to the glass slide. There's some work and research being done in that area, but I think it's not not necessarily surprising to have this lag. So then the other thing that kind of goes part and parcel with going digital, the ability to digitize the slides then becomes, once you have that data, once the images become data, so to speak, what can we do with that data? And then I think that's kind of where artificial intelligence comes in. That's what we're going to talk about today. So before we even get into that, can we just start with a definition of roughly what is artificial intelligence? Because it seems like such a loaded term and maybe it means different things to different people or has several definitions. So what exactly are we talking about with AI? It is interesting. And I think uh, the terms are often used interchangeably when you talk about artificial intelligence, AI, or machine learning, ML. You'll see a lot of folks acting in AI slash ML. 
to give a mention to that uh, area. But I believe AI specifically uh, refers to deep learning and deep learning technologies or neural networks that have really uh, risen to prominence in the past 10 years or so. And neural networks are structures that are loosely based on the human brain. And I say loosely really because we really have very little understanding of how our brains work. This is technology that has been around since 50s and 60s, and lots of research has happened in that area, and it has gone through ups and downs. It's what they call the AI winters and the AI summers and so on. But more specifically, in the early 2000s, in 2012, we started seeing you know, large amounts of data, so the big data hype at the time. Uh, we started seeing more use of uh, GPUs or graphical uh, processing units. And these are components in our laptops that are used to run graphics, so essentially graphics cards. And we found that to train a neural network, it's an embarrassingly parallel process, very similar to producing graphics on your computer, and that we can leverage this hardware to allow us to train neural networks faster. And there's a few other improvements in the methodology, which then allowed us to go deeper with these neural networks, hence the name deep learning. More specifically, in 2012, the ImageNet competition is uh, where I think a lot of people r recognize where this revolution started. And the ImageNet competition uh, was a computer vision competition, around a 1,000 classes of anything from cats and dogs to cars and trucks. And the performance was more or less stable every year, so it was an annual competition until 2012 came and you know, neural networks or deep learning was introduced as a method. And there was a very high significant change in performance and improvement in performance that wasn't seen before. The specific study now uh, was cited over 45,000 times. It's one of the most cited studies in, in AI. But generally, there are other branches uh, also, there are other methods when you talk about AI, such as the Bayesian uh, probability or uh, probabilistic modeling and graph neural networks and so on and so forth. There's also natural language processing, which uh, deals with sequences of text. Uh, for instance, generally, AI is often used to refer to deep learning technologies generally. And you seem to have a special interest in AI as it is applied to pathology and startups. Even in this area, pathology seems to be lagging behind other specialties, although there seem to be you know, a fair number of AI startups in pathology or use, utilizing those technologies. Compared to other specialties such as radiology, we seem to be far behind that as well. Any insights as to why you think that might be? I believe startups are our main driver for, for change, being able to innovate, move fast, and, and break things, as they say. A quick uh, research that I did looking at the number of startups, say, in pathology, roughly 20 or so in the past seven, eight years, versus radiology uh, with over 100 or 150 and so on. So definitely pathology uh, venture space is much smaller than, say, radiology or uh, drug discovery even. I believe that there are a lot of barriers to entry for startup in pathology. Radiology, for instance, as an example, for comparison, one can get away with developing a standalone AI algorithm for radiology simply because the infrastructure to serve this algorithm exists. So in radiology, uh, we have the image acquisition hardware, which is really standard. They call them big magnets for big iron, uh, MR scanners, CT scanners, etc. We also have the PAX system, which is the picture archival and communication system a system for storing images, communicating them, querying them, and so on and so forth, and that's pretty standard across the board. 
standard file format, the DICOM file format, uh, virtually all CT images are saved in that format. So the infrastructure really, really exists. And when it comes to pathology, startups must actually build the entire stack, be able to provide turnkey solutions. And for pathology labs that have not gone digital yet, uh, they also need to advocate for these labs to go digital. So in a sense, they're trying to push for going digital, and they're also trying to push for productivity tools through AI and automation and so on. This is where I feel there there is a little bit of a lag uh, when it comes uh, to, uh, to pathology startups. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think we've all heard of the importance of interoperability or uniform standards. Has that been more of a challenge, so to speak, in pathology, just even getting to a point where images across various practice settings or from different institutions or on various digital pathology platforms are using a uniform standard compared to, say, radiology? I, I believe so. Um, the other the other issue that uh, comes into play here are uh, vendor-specific formats, and these are often proprietary. It becomes very difficult for someone that wants to really utilize the data to develop an AI model, say, to be able to actually get access to the images. There has been a lot of uh, work in the community uh, to try to say, for instance, take the DICOM standard that has worked really well in radiology and implement a pathology counterpart for it. But there hasn't been large community push towards a specific format. Uh, being able to, to do that will really change how we, uh, how we interact with the data across institutions as well. And now, so in looking at these various AI-focused startups in pathology, you identified a framework that you used to evaluate these companies. I believe it was laboratory operations, clinical decision support, and then uh, research and development. So maybe we could just walk through these uh, one by one and tell us uh, what you mean and what things we should be paying attention to in each of these areas. So let's talk about first laboratory operations. So what do you mean by that? And then what is the potential for artificial intelligence there? When I consider categorizing these startups and what they do, I look at tasks that they are trying to perform in terms of is it a detection task, is it a characterization task, and so on, uh, as well as their user, who, who are they targeting? Is it a pathologist, uh, is it a lab technician, and so on and so forth. Laboratory operations, we are mainly talking about improving lab efficiency, being able to do quality control and image management and so on. And so here, the AI tools uh, are being really marketed as a workflow tools. Examples of these might include running tedious tasks such as cell counting, for instance, or being able to automate sort of detection algorithms uh, that might be able to prioritize and triage the, uh, cases uh, for the pathologist. Uh, being able to, say, um, highlight certain regions of interest in the image so that pathologists are able to very quickly scan uh, images and go through them uh, faster. So these are kind of uh, operational tasks uh, that lie at, at the bottom, at the kind of a more low-level low um, low stage of the, the pathology workflow, and they mainly uh, serve the laboratory operations. So is it fair to say in this category are things that will help us do the things we're already doing, but just better or faster or more efficiently, or we could utilize machine learning or artificial intelligence to do things that human beings would do anyway, but just don't do as, as well as a machine, like counting cells or things like that? Exactly, exactly. And uh, the goal ultimately is to um, move away from these tedious tasks and focus on more higher level tasks. 
process of you know detection, characterization, and so on. I see. So freeing us up uh, to focus to focus on more lofty tasks. So I guess that brings us kind of to the next area of focus is clinical decision support. So what are we talking about there? So um, I believe clinical decision support is the, the pathologist's really core clinical task, uh, diagnosing a finding and characterizing it, uh, you know, predicting uh, histology, grading, uh, providing, uh, you know, cancer grading, uh, oncology grading, and so on. And I believe uh, that these applications, AI applications, will are likely to start as providing a second opinion. So, you know, we think this is cancerous, we think this is the specific grade and so on. Uh, it will be a while, I think, until they become uh, autonomous. So that's, I think, one important factor here. Um, it is highly uh, contingent on laboratory, on AI tools for laboratory operations. And so a pathologist who is not using AI to run a tedious task like cell counting is unlikely to use AI uh, to be able to diagnose a finding. And so I think these, uh, these two areas are really tightly knit together. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268 for more information. JAV Advisors. Okay. Yeah, that does seem to be kind of our bread and butter is the clinical decision support. So making the diagnosis, which is, of course, incredibly important, and then adding additional predictive and prognostic information. So how is, you know, what is the course of the disease likely to be? And then is this disease likely or not to respond to a given therapy? And how can we best match the patients with, with the appropriate therapy? So is it fair to say there's a lot of optimism for growth in this area? Because I think we're pretty good at making the diagnosis, but then in adding that additional information, you know, personalizing the therapy and so forth, is there a lot of room for growth there? Yes, and this actually brings us to the, the third uh, focus area, which is really research and development. And that's really where the prognostic power of AI shines. We are talking about being able to develop imaging biomarkers, essentially identifying features in a pathology slide that are relevant to a given outcome. Uh, we're talking about being able to utilize digital pathology slides for things like clinical trial recruitment, being able to give patients a more tailored treatment, being able to develop companion diagnostics. And admittedly, you know, this area is definitely far behind from a translational standpoint, but to me personally, it is really the most exciting application of the technology, simply because these are tasks that uh, we as humans are not able to perform our, on our own today. It really opens up a, a wide avenue of uh, tasks that could be performed uh, on, on the images. Are there any areas that you see that, or are there any niches you see that are out there that are not being addressed in the current startup landscape? I think being able to own the entire vertical stack um, the pathology workflow is really important. So, and, and I specifically refer to, for instance, being able to control the staining practices. I understand that the strength of the stains used can actually fall on the pathologist's personal preference. And when you're talking about AI algorithms, this is an incredible uh, source of noise uh, that could come in. 
companies that are able to control the entire stack, being able to actually potentially digitize the images themselves, uh, define certain protocols of how images should be processed or at least pre-processed before they are digitized is really, uh, is really crucial in maintaining a high performance for their models. And this also follows along being able to achieve a high throughput as well in the sample preparation, which could take days today. So there's that issue of standardization again. And so it's potentially not being adequately addressed, or at least you see there's, there's still a lot of room for, for companies to jump in there and fill the space. And we're also seeing some new models that are appearing. So beyond really AI, we have digitization as a service now. There are a few companies, Histowitz, providing digitization as a service where you can send them slides a couple of days later, being able to view it on your uh, computer screen. There is also some innovation in the hardware space. So being able to automate sample preparation, being able to push it to 200 or 300 slides at a time, digitizing 300 slides at a time. And Inviox uh, is a company in Germany that is also uh, working in that space. So there, there are some interesting uh, innovations, even uh, beyond uh, beyond the AI applications that I think are coming to digital pathology and will have a really great an impact on AI adoption rates in pathology. This lack of standardization and well, even more than that, uh, just preference of pathologists to do things their own way in their own labs, I think has perhaps hindered practice compared to you know other other industries such as pharmaceuticals, where it's very clear the need or the ability to perform large multi-center cooperative group trials, you know, to get to get drugs approved and standardize the ways of, of doing things. It seems like pathology has kind of lagged behind and still, you know, we have a lot of homebrew, so to speak, tests in immunohistochemistry or even molecular, where we're doing things one way in one hospital and a different way in a different hospital. As we move into digital, is this still going to be a problem? Are, people, are pathologists going to be wanting to develop their own AI tools and their own AI solutions that work in their lab, validated on their patients, you know, but don't really take the national or international stage? Are we going to eventually come to a, a unified way of doing things? Uh, I would say things are likely to stay the same for a while. I, I say that because uh, what you mentioned about pathologists liking or um, wanting to do things their, their own way, I see this a lot across the board. So for instance, with radiation oncologists, uh, and the, the way they generate their treatment plans is, uh, there's, there's a little bit of an art there of you know, what, what they think uh, should be uh, radiated, uh, what parts of the image or the patient should be radiated or not. And they, you know, they, they would see the output from an AI algorithm and they might they might reject it uh, simply because it does not match uh, what they think should should look like, even though uh, other um, other radiation oncologists might agree to it. So there's definitely um, subjectivity in pathology, radiology, radiation oncology, and so on. Uh, there is large um, inter and intra reader variability, um, and obviously um, in some tasks more more than others. And then the question is um, really. Um, you know, uh, what are the levels of AI acceptance that we can have today? And will we move beyond uh, things like um, personal preference when it comes to the, to using these tools when we are getting uh, time savings, cost savings, uh, and, and, and so on uh, and so forth? And the other related problem comes 
from the AI models themselves is the generalizability of models for of AI models. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, you can have a model trained on data from institution A, and when you validate um, on uh, data from institution B, uh, you suddenly get a significant uh, drop in performance. And this obviously has, really has to do with uh, how the data in these two different institutions is actually uh, different in the first place. Um, so it, it's not very clear if it will be one size fits all, uh, if AI solutions will be developed for um, specifically for centers. Of course, uh, these has to, will have to be very large and high volume, maybe academic centers that have enough data that could be used to train models. Um, it's, it's still unclear how, for instance, smaller uh, labs, low volume labs could benefit from that. So I think it, it will be it will be a while of um, it will be a, a period of time, five, 10 years of um, medical professionals working along AI tools and to kind of reach uh, re reach a point where uh, they're really happy with the results, um, but they're also um, you know foregoing uh, some some of their personal preferences that they that they are used to. Getting away from this subjectivity is going to be a challenge that will be with us for some time. And I think it's well known that medicine is very much an art as well as a science, even even in 2020 and beyond. So you, you also talked about how digitization and AI can mature alongside one another and produce highly integrated solutions. What, what do you mean by this? Yeah, I, I think I referred specifically to multiple areas when discussing this topic. Uh, first, we have the back end. If you look at radiology, for instance, the data is digital and that's great, but that doesn't mean that we can come in and utilize it right away. The data requires a lot of curation. It's been collected in a way that is very inconvenient for developing AI models. And the same with, uh, for instance, EMR. EMR today has a very high adoption rate and almost everyone uses EMR, but the data is not structured, so we still write in free-form text. And when you uh, want to, say, uh, run analysis on the data, you want to understand patient populations, specifically when it comes to cancer, for instance, you will have to take this unstructured free text, convert it into structured text in terms of, you know, tables, rows and columns, and so on and so forth. And so I really feel it's a, it's a shame for such a great technology like EMR not to be able to provide the benefit when it comes to data analysis, when it comes to analytics and AI and so on and so forth. And I feel that when it comes to pathology and, and the fact that we are digitizing, we've been digitizing pathology for a while, but since it's still ongoing, we have the opportunity today to design systems that would generate cleaner data. Uh, that would require less work downstream when it comes to analytics and AI and so on and so forth. Now, thank you so much for being with us, Amid Hosni. Before we wrap up, uh, just tell us what excites you. Where do you see the field going in the next 10 years or so? One of the things I think will really push will push digital pathology forward uh, is the ability um, to uh, look at relationships between providers, uh, labs, and R&D. Yeah, I think clinical trials specifically uh, should be or could be a great driver for uh, digital pathology and being able to uh, analyze data in a digital, in a digital sense. Uh, having position between provider and pharma could really allow for faster drug development, uh, being able to inform clinical trial design. You know, in the other direction, things that are developed more on the research side 
clearly see how they could be conducted and implemented in the lab uh, or the clinic one day. There is really no doubt that digitization is coming to pathology, and I, I feel that the question, the question that remains is uh, at what rate? Specifically, when it comes to AI, obviously requires uh, digitization, and this is why AI might lag slightly behind uh, the adoption rates of the digital pathology, but I believe that they will be um, moving together uh, side by side uh, moving forward. All right. We've been talking about uh, digitization and artificial intelligence in pathology with Amit Hosni from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.